If you have a Bible, and I hope you do, let me invite you to open with me to Jonah chapter 1. I don't think it is a coincidence that we come to this book on this day, Jonah, the 4th of July. And I want to be really careful that on this day when we celebrate our freedom as Americans, celebrate our independence from all other nations, and think about this book, the book of Jonah, obviously I want us to be cognizant of the fact that we don't equate Israel and the people of Israel, the nation of Israel, the people of God in the Old Testament with the United States of America. There's major significant differences. At the same time, I think there are a lot of similarities between what we see in Jonah's heart and what we see in our own hearts this morning. So I want to ask this question from the very beginning that's at the top of your notes. Question for us today, is it possible for pride in our own nation to keep us from being a part of God's purpose in all nations? Is it possible for pride in our own nation to keep us from being a part of God's purpose in all nations? I've told this story before here, and it's in that little orange book out there, but it's worth retelling again this morning just because it illustrates so well this tendency. I've told this story before of going to one particular church. This was before I had come to Brook Hills. I was going to preach that Sunday morning on making disciples of all nations. On Saturday night, Heather and I were sitting around with the pastor and his wife, two deacons and their wives, and we were telling them about some of the opportunities that we, I had in going into different countries that are not easy to go into countries where people are, are oftentimes opposed to Christianity, opposed to the gospel, difficult countries. And we're sharing about some of that with these guys when one of the deacons sat up in his chair and said, Dave, I think it's great that you're going to all of those places, but if you ask me, I would just as soon God annihilate all of those people and send them to hell. I know preachers have a tendency to exaggerate, but that's exactly what he said. I would just assume God annihilate all of them and send them to hell. You asked me what I said in response. I didn't, I didn't say anything. I was stunned into silence. I didn't know what to say. And conversation ended up going on like, like nothing had happened. And I thought, okay, I'm going to preach on making disciples of all nations tomorrow. This is going to be interesting. And so I got there on Sunday morning. I was... There on the front row, before I got up to preach, the pastor got up and he was kind of welcoming folks. And I don't know what sparked it. It was not the 4th of July, but something patriotic was aroused in him. And he began to talk about how there is no chance he would ever live anywhere outside of the United States. He talked about how proud he was to be an American and how thankful he was to live in this country and not in another country. And I, I thought Lee Greenwood was about to pop in the background and we were going to stand up and cross our hearts, and amens were firing throughout the room, and I thought, all right, I'm about to preach on going to all nations, and so, so I preached, I hope, I pray with as much grace as in me and in Christ, and at the end, I was standing down in the front, and uh, the pastor got up to close things out, and he said, before we leave, I want, I want to say a couple things. He said, David, we just want you to know that we are so thankful for all these places that you're going. And we want to promise you this morning that we will send you money so that we don't have to go to those places ourselves. His exact words. Heather's arm comes, hand comes up on my shoulder. She's standing behind me. Like she can tell, I don't know why she's putting her hand on my shoulder. Like I'm about to like run up and tackle the guy or something. I'm not <laughs> sure. But sweat is just beating down my neck. And he continues, he said, at my last church, these are his words, my last church, we had a missionary from Japan who come and sp came and spoke. And I told my church that if they didn't give to support this missionary in Japan, that I was going to pray that God would send their kids to go work with him in Japan. Like it was a threat. And he said, my church gave that guy a laptop, all these different things. Apparently the threat worked. 
And I got in the car after that Sunday, and we, we drove away, and just the swell of emotions came over me. Anger and sadness and confusion, but then it, it hit me. What if that deacon and that pastor simply said what most Christians in our context believe but are just not bold enough to say. Now you may think, that's a little too harsh, maybe a little too brash, but think about it with me. How many of us in this room have given serious thought, serious consideration to the possibility of living in another nation for the glory of God. How many Christians in this room, how many of us, have prayed and fasted and sought the Lord and said, do you want me to live, my family to live in another nation? Or have we sat back and said, we are content to write our checks and send our money so that we do not have to go ourselves? How many of us in this room as parents are really praying and asking God to raise up our children to go to Afghanistan and Sudan and India and China and the Central African Republic to take the gospel there even if that means they never come back? And obviously, I don't think any one of us would say, well, I just assume God annihilate all those people and send them to hell. But what are we saying with our lives? If we sit back in the comforts of our own country and never give second thought to how we might give ourselves to making the gospel known in those places. That is what the story of Jonah is all about. A little background, 2 Kings 14.25, you don't have to turn there, but in 2 Kings 14.25, what we discover is that the word of the Lord came to Jonah the prophet, and he took that word to king, the king of the northern kingdom, Jeroboam, northern kingdom of Israel. And the word was, you need to shore up your borders in the north to protect yourself, basically, from Assyria, which was the massive nation, Israel's greatest enemy in the north. And so the word came to Jonah. He went to the king, said, shore up the borders. The king did so. And Jonah was basically a national hero, an Israelite of Israelites. He had brought the message that had brought freedom, so to speak, more security from the Assyrians in the north. If this book that we hold in our hands was all about national heroes in Israel, then Jonah would have been the top tale to tell. Unfortunately, though, that is not the story that is told of Jonah. Much probably to Jonah's chagrin, we have this story instead that tells a much different picture of God's heart not just for one nation but for all nations. Now, I have been thinking, how can this story that I'm guessing many of us are familiar with, how can we really let the depth of this story sink into our hearts? And there is a, a, a musical group that I've worked with in the past that wrote a song about Jonah that was extremely moving, extremely powerful, just exploring the depth of this story. And when I figured out that we would be in Jonah this week, I found out that this group would be coming through Birmingham on this holiday weekend. And so I invited them to come and worked it out with Jim for them to be here this morning. The first time I heard this story, I was brought to tears, just weeping, overwhelmed by the realities that are expressed in the book of Jonah. And so we have, by the grace of God, an opportunity to hear that song this morning, and I want, it, I want them to minister to us, and as a result, for us to have our hearts prepared to dive into this word. So let me invite them to join me out here.
Well, Pastor, we'd uh, like to thank you for inviting us. We're about as tickled as a pig in slop to be here. And um, well, there's not much else to say. I'm ready whenever you are. Well, the word of the Lord came to Jonah one day about a city and some people who'd gone astray, and Jonah was just the guy to set him right. I see these people, they had used to belong to the Lord, but they weren't really acting like it anymore. So God wanted Jonah to go and call out them Ninevites. And he said, Oh, Jonah, oh, Jonah, Nineveh is wicked now, can't you see? Oh, Jonah, oh, Jonah, want those Ninevites to come right back to me? He tried to flee, so he hopped on a boat that was headed to sea. He was thinking he could escape from the Lord. Of course, the Lord saw what Jonah had done. That yellow belly boy done tried to run. So he hurled the sea into one big mess of a storm. Roro Jonah, Roro Jonah. Don't forget I'm captain of the sea. Roro Jonah, Roro Jonah. Turn started to sink a little bit. The boys on the boat said, hey, who's to blame for all this? And Jonah, yeah, he got the short end of the stick. He said, I'm a Hebrew and I fear the Lord and it's my God who's caused this terrible storm. I walk the plank, you'll see that water calm. You better hope so, boy. Oh, no, Jonah. Oh, no, Jonah. Now why'd you run away, old Tarshish? Oh, no, Jonah. How does it feel to be the blue plate special for a big old fish? There she goes, boys. Ain't no place for no man. And three days later, you can imagine the smell. Jonah thought, Man, I'm going to die. <laughs> so he called out to the Lord in his deep, dark distress. And Jonah went ahead and surrendered it all that night because he figured the Lord was already in control of his life. And what do you know? The Lord saved him from that fishy mess. <laughs> oh, Jonah, boy, I love Just like you've been told well, You could say being fish vomits like being parole Oh yeah, and them Ninevites They got that message from the Lord Sackcloth and ashes and the good dose of repentance Got them Ninevites out from underneath that horrible sentence And Jonah, lucky guy He got the hell Oh Jonah Oh Jonah I got strength and I got love And now you see Oh Jonah my friends do as you're told because you know in the end lord he's going to get what he wants see jonah learned this the hard way but not you because you know that the lord's way is the only one that's true that's of course you like to be swallowed up by fish oh jonah oh jonah you and me we're going down in history oh jonah boy i 
go and get your coat, Jonah, going to Nineveh. The Lord is gracious. <laughs> they wrote that song. Mm -hmm. Wow. And they came up with their own costumes. Like, yeah. <laughs> All right, now, a little more inspired version of the story, Jonah chapter 1, verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Now, a little background here. I mentioned... Assyria to the north of Israel. Assyrians were known, not just in Israel, but among all these other nations, for their sinfulness, for their arrogance, for their pride, and for their absolute brutality in war. They wouldn't just overtake other nations. They would slaughter other nations. Listen to one account from a king. This was before even Jonah's time, but a king of Assyria who was talking about his spoils in war, he said, Many of the captives I burned in a fire. Many I took alive. From some I cut off their hands to the wrists. From others I cut off their noses, ears, and fingers. I put out the eyes of many of the soldiers. I burnt their young men and women to death. This was the reputation of the Assyrians. And you'll never guess what the capital city of Assyria was. Nineveh, the arch enemy of the northern kingdom of Israel, known for their sinfulness and brutality. And God comes to Jonah and says, I want you, my prophet, to go and preach my message in the middle of Nineveh. Verse 3 says, but Jonah rose. Whenever you see a command from God followed by the word but, you know if something's wrong. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. I used to live in New Orleans. If you could picture it this way. If you're in New Orleans, the Lord were to come to you and say, go to Atlanta. This would be the equivalent of going down to the port in New Orleans and instead of heading toward Atlanta, getting on a ship that is headed to Mexico. Jonah is going the exact opposite direction, geographically and spiritually. He is running from the presence of the Lord, and this spirals downward. The text even emphasizes it. He goes down to Joppa, where he finds a ship, and goes down to the bottom of the ship, where he lies down to go to sleep. So he is running from God. On that ship, we know that a storm comes, massive storm, and these pagan sailors on the boat are praying to every single God they can think of to try to get out of this mess. And they are trying to figure out what has brought this upon them. The captain goes down to where Jonah is sleeping. He says, get up. Jonah comes up. It doesn't take him long to realize that this storm has nothing to do with these pagan sailors. This storm has everything to do with this disobedient prophet. And so it becomes clear that he is the reason for the problem and Jonah is thrown overboard. And as he sinks into the depths of the sea, the waters around that boat and the storm ceases and goes calm. The sailors on board the ship worship the Lord of Jonah while Jonah sinks to the depths of the sea. Well, at that moment, verse 17 in chapter 1, the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now, we don't know all the details here. We don't know if this is a whale or just a really big fish. And it's interesting. There are all kinds of attempts at natural explanations of what has happened here. The reality is this is supernatural. It is not often that someone gets eaten by an aquatic animal and lives in the belly for a few days in the middle of fish intestines and fish blubber and fish, fish waste 
for a little quiet time with the Lord. That doesn't happen often, thankfully. It happened here for three days. Jonah is in the middle of a fish's belly until, and then during that time he prays. Chapter 2, you look at this prayer. We don't have time to read it, but nine verses. He prays to God climaxing with the salvation belongs to the Lord. He knows that God is saving him. But what's really interesting is that when you look at that prayer, you see one conspicuous omission. At no point in the prayer do you see Jonah expressing contrition, even confession for his sin. You do not see him at any point in his prayer, in his prayer repenting for the sin that has got him into the fish's belly in the first place. And so in verse 10... The Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Not a pretty picture. If you could only imagine what it might look like to see a man vomited onto the beach by a fish. All kinds of chunks of tuna and seaweed and, and a man. To see him. And doubtless people saw this. And if they didn't see it, they smelled this. Jonah gets up and begins to walk, and surrounded by people. And doubtless the story begins to be told. This is a man who just spent three days in a fish. I don't believe it. Look at the guy. And the story is told. Here's a man who's been three days in a fish and is alive, and he goes to. Nineveh in chapter 3. Now a little more background about Nineveh. The name Nineveh literally meant fish town. And the picture was, tradition, history goes, in the city of Nineveh, that there was a time in their polytheism, worship of many, many different gods, that a Greek god that was half fish, half man, had come to Nineveh from the sea, bringing all kinds of arts and sciences to the city. And so now, under the sovereignty of the one true God, Nineveh, the swallowable prophet, comes to the city, Fishtown, and he preaches a simple eight-word sermon of doom and judgment. Forty days, Jonah says, and the Lord is going to destroy you. At no point in his message does he say, but the Lord will forgive you. The Lord will relent from the destruction he's bringing on you if you repent and turn to him. Instead, it is just doom and judgment. But by the grace of God, the people of Nineveh do end up turning. The people hear the message. The king hears the message. He calls out to all the people, we need to repent and fast. He even tells the animals to fast. And so you've got Every one and everything in the city of Nineveh, repenting, turning to God. And it says in verse 10, chapter 3, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Now, this is where we expect the story to end. Happily ever after, Jonah, we presume, has been obedient. The people of Nineveh have repented. But the reality is, after three, three chapters, the stage is now just set for the main point of the book of Jonah in chapter 4. Listen to what happened when the city repented. Verse 1, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. What is that? The prophet preaches people turn to God, and the prophet is mad. And this is where we see, for the first time, the reason why Jonah disobeyed God and ran away from Nineveh. Verse 2, he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Did you catch that? Jonah ran 
away from Nineveh, not because he was afraid of failure in Nineveh. He ran because he was afraid of success in Nineveh. He knew this would happen. And he's angry. It's almost like he's looking in the face of God saying, I knew you would show your love to them. Why did you show your love to them? This is why I don't want to obey you in the first place. Verse 3, he says, Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. He's sulking. In verse 5, he went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. While, the, while this entire city is turning in repentance to God, the prophet is not in the middle of them, leading them in prayer and in worship of God. Instead, he goes sulking out of the city, sits down in the shade, and watches to see what's going to happen next. The Lord, verse 6, appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. Jonah has gone from exceedingly mad in verse 1 when the people and the city repented to exceedingly glad when a plant gave him some shade. And so know what happens next. When dawn came up the next day, verse 7, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonas that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, this is the second time he's asked this question, Do you well, do well to be angry? And this time he says, For the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And then we come to verse 10 and 11, the two most important verses in the book. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. God says to Jonah, Jonah, you are concerned about a plant when there is a people whom I have created and crafted with my own hand, and I have shown my mercy and love to them and you want nothing to do with it because you're more concerned about this plant. And the story doesn't end with a happily ever after. Instead, the story ends with a haunting question from God that resounds, yes, in Jonah's heart, but resounds in the heart of God's people in this day and a question that resounds all across this room among God's people today. What's the point of this story? And what does God desire to teach us as his people today through this story? Well, first, see what we learn about God and Jonah. Three characteristics of God all over this book. Number one, his sovereign control. In this book, there is a beautiful interplay between the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. We see man, we see people making all kinds of decisions, running away from God and Jonah, sailors worshiping multiple different gods, Nineveh doing everything they want to do, and then finally repenting, Jonah walking out and sulking. We've got people responsible for their actions. At the same time, we see a God who is sovereign over every single detail in this story. He is sovereign over nature. God is sovereign over nature. Chapter 1, verse 4, the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. The Lord did that. Verse 17, the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. Chapter 2, the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. God said, vomit, and it vomited. 
Chapter 4, verse 6, the Lord appointed a plant. Verse 7, God appointed a worm. Verse 8, God appointed a scorching east wind. Do you see it? God is sovereign over the movement of the wind and the movement of worms. He is sovereign over storms, and God is sovereign over vomit. He's sovereign over it all. There is not one detail in creation that is not ultimately under the sovereign control of God. See his sovereignty over nature and over nations. In this entire book, it is God who holds the fate of Assyria in his hands. If God wants to destroy it, then he will destroy it. If God wants to relent and not destroy it, he will relent and not destroy it. And he's not just sovereign over over a pagan nation like Assyria. He is sovereign also over his prophet, which is actually really, really, really good news. Not just for Jonah or for the people of God then, but for every single one of us in this room as the people of God now. Because the reality is, Because God has sovereign authority over all nature, all nations, and all things in heaven and on earth, then we can realize that God's people cannot outrun God's pursuit. God has the forces of nature and nations at his disposal. And you, man or woman of God, You cannot outrun your God. And that's really good news. It's good news whenever we think about Jonah's running. The reality is Jonah's running is a picture of every single time we sin, isn't it? Turning from God. No, I'm going to do this instead. And we praise God in this room that when we are unfaithful, he is faithful still. And the people of God cannot outrun the pursuit of God. That's good news. His sovereign control leads to his merciful compassion. See the wonder and the wideness of his mercy in this book. Everybody in this book is messed up. Jonah is messed up. These sailors worshiping all these different gods messed up. The city of Nineveh is royally messed up. But we see the mercy of God coming to all of them. We see his mercy towards sinful pagans, towards sailors, who are worshiping all kinds of different gods, they deserve to be thrown overboard with Jonah. And yet the Lord in his mercy brings them. It's a startling verse in chapter 1, verse 16, when he brings these pagan sailors to worship the one true God, Yahweh, the God of Israel. And the whole city of Nineveh, think about it, for years, for generations, sinfulness, arrogant pride, brutality, for years after year after year after year. And in a moment, those people turn to God and he relents from their destruction. It's mercy towards sinful pagans and mercy towards selfish prophets. God shows mercy not just to the irreligious, but he shows mercy to the religious. He shows mercy not just to the unrighteous. He shows mercy to the self-righteous. Isn't it good? That God's capacity to forgive is greater than our capacity to sin. We are great sinners in this room. But we have a greater Savior in this room. Greater than our sin is His ability to save See, his sovereign control, his merciful compassion, all leading to God's global concern. It is clear in this book that God loves his people. He loves his people. Jonah is exhibit A. Among all the people in the book that deserve the love and mercy of God, the least Jonah is at the top of that list. He is running from God. And at no point do we see him repenting and turning to God like we see the pagan sailors in the pagan city do. So God loves his people. 
But what we have seen ever since we began reading the Bible this year is true and really comes to a head in the book of Jonah. God loves his people for the sake of all peoples. What God said to Abraham in Genesis 12 is still in place in Jonah 4. Abraham, I will bless you so that you might be a blessing to all nations. It's not just about the people of Israel and the nation of Israel. It's about all nations knowing my grace and my mercy and my goodness. And that's coming alive here in Jonah chapter 4. God loves his people for the sake of all peoples. But it's what we have seen throughout the Old Testament, isn't it? And over and over and over again, God's people are disconnecting his blessing to them from his purpose for them. They are content over and over and over again just to sit back and receive the blessing of God and not to make the glory of God known in all nations. And it's not just the Old Testament. We will see it in the New Testament. And we see it all throughout church history. Brothers and sisters, we need to see the record that goes before us. The global purpose of God has always faced resistance from the nationalistic people of God. It's clear in the people of Israel in the Old Testament, but even when we get into the New Testament and we see this division between Jews and Gentiles, should we even let the nations into the church and then you look in the history of the church and, and you see people saying things, leaders, pastors saying things like, why do we need to take the gospel to the heathen in India? God will save them if he wants to. We need to stay here. And you see a resistance all throughout the history of God's people to God's purpose. At every turn, we see God far more concerned about His glory in all nations than His people are. This is what we learn about God. It leads to what we learn about Jonah. Because this is what God is teaching to Jonah. His sovereign control, His merciful compassion, and His global concern and that's really the point of what he is doing, God is doing in the book of Jonah. The point is not just to bring this about in Nineveh. If that were the point, if Nineveh was the focus of this book, then after Jonah ran, God would have found a more reliable prophet on the spot and somebody else would have gone, preached to them. They would have come to repentance and that's where the book would have ended. Instead, what we have is this story about God forming the heart of his prophet. What needed to be formed in Jonah? Well, first, he wanted his way more than he wanted God's will. Jonah's plan for his life was not about to be trumped by God's purpose in the world. He had his face set on his direction, his course, captain of his own fate and soul. And he was going to determine what, was, what was going, his life was going to look like, not God. Up to the very last verse in the book, we still see Jonah more interested in his way than in God's will. Second, Jonah desired the good of his nation more than he desired the gospel in other nations. Jonah was a national hero for the word he brought to Jeroboam. He wanted to maintain that, for God to come and say, now you go to Assyria, where we've just built this border to protect us from, you go to them and preach a message that he knows is going to bring their salvation, their deliverance. Jonah says, absolutely not. I want the good of Israel more than I want the good news to go to that nation. Which is, it's interesting. You go back to Jonah chapter 1, verse 9. The first words we see from Jonah in the entire book, listen to what he says, verse 9. He said to them, these sailors, I am a Hebrew. His first words in the middle of a storm, raging around them, threatening to kill them, his first identification is, I am a Hebrew. His pride in his own nation, his desire for the good of his own nation, trumped his desire for the gospel in other nations. Third, he knew the character of God in his head, but he ignored the compassion of God in his heart. You look at Jonah's prayer in chapter 2, and then 
And what Jonah says in chapter 4, verse 2, when he says, I knew you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He is quoting directly from Exodus chapter 34 where God had revealed his glory to his people when he gave him his law. He knows God in his head. And yet he is more concerned about having shade in his seat than he is about that compassion that he knows is in God being made known to these people. Oh, to see the very prophet of God who knows the depth of who God is in his mind and yet has no desire to see the compassion of God known in the world around him. Instead, forth, he was more concerned about his own empty desires than he was about others' eternal destinies. Plainly put, Jonah cared more about a plant than he did about people. He cared more about shade than he did about their salvation. And he was mad when this little thing went wrong. Mad when this little thing went wrong. But he desired this entire city to perish under the judgment of God. More concerned about his entire empty desires than about others' eternal destinies. More concerned about a plant than the destinies of hundreds of thousands of people for an eternity. Which all brings us to this final truth we learn about Jonah that sums it all up. He failed to connect the mercy of God in his life with the mission of God in the world. Jonah was fine to be a recipient of mercy, crying out in chapter 2, verse 9, salvation belongs to the Lord, but he was unwilling to extend that mercy to others. He was fine experiencing the mercy of God in his life, but he wanted nothing to do with the mission of God in the world. Now this is not the most shining example of a prophet that we see in the Old Testament. But lest we be too hard on Jonah, I want us to look at at these things we learn about him and just ask the question, are these things tendencies in our own hearts as well? Are there times when we want our way more than we want God's will? Where we are not interested in where He wants us to go or what He wants us to do because we already have our plans set out. Is it possible for us to sit back and enjoy the good life in our nation without giving second thought to how God might want to use us to make the gospel known in other nations. This is basically the default setting in our churches in this context. Is it possible for you and I in this room to know the character of God in our heads and yet lack the compassion of God in our hearts? Is it possible for us to study the Word for an extended time this morning in this room and yet walk by someone tomorrow who may be on a road that leads to an eternal hell and not even think twice about that? Is it possible for us to be more concerned about empty desires and petty comforts and things that, little things in our life here that get us a little riled up and deafen us to the reality that we are surrounded in this, this great city and in the world with literally billions of people who are headed to an eternity without God. And to have our affections so intertwined with little things that we lose sight of eternal realities. Is it a temptation for us in this room to 
sit back and soak in the mercy of God and yet give a mere tip of our hats at best to the mission of God in the world. See in Jonah's heart a reflection of our own. But don't stop there. That would be depressing. Instead, see in the book of Jonah what we are seeing all throughout the Old Testament, how he is pointing us ultimately to Jesus. What do we learn about Jesus in this book? Well, think about it on two levels. First, when it comes to contrast between these two prophets, Jonah and Jesus. And again, I'm referring here to Jesus as not one prophet among many, but a prophet who is supreme and unique above and over all, our prophet, priest, and king. Think about We have seen the selfishness of Jonah. We've seen how he reluctantly preaches to sinners in need of God's grace. Reluctance is a kind word. He is not wanting to go to Nineveh. And so he reluctantly preaches to sinners in need of God's grace. He's disobedient, even angry, pouting and sulking as he does. But nevertheless, he goes to the city that is filled with his enemies. And there he preaches the word of the Lord And as a result, people in Nineveh are temporarily spared from the judgment of God. That's the story we just saw when it comes to the prophet of Jonah. But it ultimately points us this story to Jesus as prophet. Not as selfish prophet, but as selfless prophet. The selflessness of Jesus. Instead of reluctantly, he relentlessly pursues sinners in need of God's grace. He is not reluctant in any way. He leaves his country, so to speak, his throne in glory. He humbles himself, being found in appearance as a man for the joy set before him. He goes not just to a city. He goes to the cross for the sake of his enemies, for the sake of men and women who have actively rebelled against him, men and women who are thrusting nails into his hands and his feet, rebelling against him. He relentlessly pursues them. On the cross, and as a result, people, not just in one nation, but people in all nations, can be eternally saved from the wrath of God. As a result, anyone in any nation in the world, and the reality is someone from every nation, tribe, tongue, and people in the world, will be saved eternally from the wrath of God and experience His salvation. Jesus, indeed, is our great prophet, priest, and king. Praise God for his selflessness. So those are the contrasts. Are there any comparisons? And this is where Jesus actually makes a comparison between himself and the story of Jonah. Go with me to Matthew chapter 12. I want us to turn to one place. Matthew chapter 12, verse 38. First book in the New Testament. Now this conversation is recounted in a couple of different gospels. But the reason I want us to go to Matthew is because Matthew was writing to a primarily Jewish audience, writing to an audience that was tempted to sit back in nationalistic pride, that was tempted to sit back and think, well, maybe Jesus has come, the Messiah has come just for the people of Israel. And so Jesus is having a conversation with some religious leaders, and I want you to hear what he says in Matthew chapter 12, verse 38. Some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, him being Jesus, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given except the sign of the prophet who? Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So here's the deal. These religious leaders, they want a sign. Give us proof that you are from God, that what you are saying is true, that what you are saying is of God. And Jesus says, you guys are always looking for a sign. And we see this at different points throughout the Gospels. And he says, you're not going to get a sign except for this. 
the sign of Jonah. And what Jesus does is he points back to the story of Jonah. And he says, this is the same picture that will be reflected in me. And this is how you will know that I am from God. Look back at Jonah. Look at the miraculous rescue that happened there, Jesus is saying. Jonah was alive after three days in a fish. Like, like we talked about, most scholars believe that the people of Nineveh and Fishtown knew this guy had just spent a few nights in a fish. And so when he comes to Nineveh as the guy who just got spit up by a fish, that it makes sense for these people to listen. This guy's going to be a prophet from the one true God, come from a, saved from a fish by that one true God, preaching a message, and they respond in repentance. That was, so to speak, the sign, the proof, the clear reality. Nineveh, listen, this guy just spent three days in a fish. You need to listen to him. So Jesus says to these religious leaders looking for a sign, you want to know that I am from God? Do you want to know even in this room today that Jesus is from God? He is alive after three days in the grave. That's a sign. It's one thing when a guy spends three, night, three nights in a fish and comes out talking. It's a whole other thing. When a guy spends three days, and this phrase, three nights and three days, was used to refer to any portion of three days. The picture is, it's one thing when a guy comes out of three days in a fish talking. It's another thing when a guy is put in a grave, in a tomb, and he's buried in that tomb, and he comes out talking. You listen to him. That's what Jesus is saying. They repented when they saw a guy who'd been in a fish. If you don't repent when you see a have seen a guy who rises from the grave, then all the more judgment upon you. He came out talking. What was he saying? The message, Jonah came out, repent, for the judgment of God is coming. Forty days and God will destroy this city. And Jesus came. And Matthew makes clear from the very beginning, Matthew 4, 17, his initial message in this book, his continual message throughout this book, Jesus says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. What he says to them then, what he says to every single person in this room, if you are here today and you have never turned from your sin and yourself to God in Christ through what he has done on a cross to cover over your sins, then the word for you from God today is repent. Turn. Man or woman or student or child, turn from your sin and turn to God in Christ. You say, well, what right does Christ have to call me to reorient my entire life around him? He died on a cross for your sins. And three days later, he was alive in victory over sin and death in the grave. That's the right he has to call you to repent. And the result, the response in Jonah was salvation for the Ninevites, the king of Nineveh, the people of Nineveh, the animals of Nineveh, crying out to God for his deliverance. And the response, merciful response that is called for in Jesus' work is salvation for the nations. Not just salvation for a certain people, not just salvation for a certain nation, but salvation for all nations. That is why Jesus came, to die, rise, preach repentance, and call the nations to turn to God. Which leads to the challenge for us. Okay, we've come from a story of an Old Testament prophet to the story of our New Testament prophet, Savior, King in Christ. So what does this mean for us? For every single one of us in this room who has been saved by a selfless Christ on a cross. For every single person in this room who used to be an enemy of God in your sin and yet he pursued you in his mercy and he outran your capacity to sin and he forgave you of your sin and has drawn you to himself. What does this mean for us? Let us then 
surrender our lives to the Great Commission, no matter what that means. We talk about Jonah turning to his way, away from God's will, and our tendency to do the same thing, but it's not just our ways in general and God's will in general. What was God's will for Jonah? Two commands. Go and preach. Go and preach. Well, you say, well, that was God's will for Jonah. What's God's will for us? God's will for us, Matthew 28, 19, later on in this same book. Two commands. Go and preach. Make disciples of all the nations. There is a clear parallel between God's will for Jonah and God's will for every single one of our lives in this room. To go and preach the gospel to all nations. To give each of our lives in this room, all of our lives collectively together as a church toward this command. Go and preach the gospel to all nations. So may it not be said of you or me or us that with this command from God, we sat back and made excuses for why we would not go to other nations. It is the same indictment that we see in Jonah that could be, but even more so, upon us who know Christ. Let us surrender our lives to the Great Commission, no matter what that means. Let's live for the gospel to spread to all nations more than we long to be safe, secure, and satisfied in our own nation. Yes, we have freedoms here, glorious freedoms given to us by the grace of God and gifts that flow from those freedoms. But that does not mean our lives are supposed to be spent here. Our identity is not primarily as Americans. I want to to risk for a second ruining your 4th of July. By asking you this question, have you in your life asked God what nation he wants you to live in. And waited for him to answer. Have you said to God, I and my family will live in any nation, among any people. You just show us where. If it is Iraq, we will live there. If it is South Africa, we will live there. If it is Nepal, we'll live there. If it's Saudi Arabia, we'll live there. My way, our way is submissive to your will. And I know, I know the immediate thought is, well, Pastor, we're not, don't you, we're not all supposed to move to other nations. And I'm not saying that we all are supposed to move to other nations. And the Bible is not saying that we all are supposed to move to other nations. But the Bible is saying that for every single follower of Christ in this room, we hold to our national ties very loosely in this world. We are citizens of another country, a heavenly country, and that is where our citizenship belongs, not in the United States of America. And as a result, our lives are his to spend from the day we sit in here now until the day when we experience that country. Our lives are his to spend wherever he wants us to be. And it is incumbent upon every follower of Christ in this room to put our lives with open hands, a blank check before the Lord and say, we will go wherever you want us to go. To not do that is to live in the shoes of the prophet Jonah for all of your Christian life.
undoubtedly God will say to some, if not many of us, I want you to live in the United States and I want you to live in Birmingham or somewhere in the United States for the sake of my glory in all nations. And he will say to others, I want you to live in this nation or that nation. I've seen a couple of families that have gone out over the last, last year or so from, from this faith family this morning. The Frost, the W's, Croatia, Bolivia. Talk to other families who are Staying here and leveraging businesses. Talk to one after the service, 9 o'clock worship gathering, saying we're trying to figure out how we can use these resources we've been given to make the glory of God known in all nations. This looks different in all of our lives, but what is, what is necessary by the grace of God from all of our lives is a blank check on the table that says we want to spread the gospel to all nations more than we want to be safe, secure, and satisfied in this nation. Let's ask God to fill our heads with his truth from the word and our hearts with his love for the world. Let us not fool ourselves and study the word of God week in and week out here and not fall before God and say, help me to see what you see in the world. Help me to feel what you feel in the world. Help me to desire what you desire in the world. God, may it be said of the church at Brook Hills that we were as passionate about the glory of God in all nations as he is. May that heart, God, be ours. Your heart be our heart. Let's forsake comforts, cares, and concerns in this world for the sake of souls in the world to come. Let us not become so consumed with trivial things that do not matter. Let us not in this room be known for valuing plants and possessions and sports and entertainments and new gadgets and nice things and stuff in this world. Let us not be known as a people who get worked up over these little things, that comforts that get taken away from us and things don't go quite the way we'd planned, let us have a perspective that sees these tiny things in reality of this mammoth truth. We are surrounded by people in this city and people in all nations whose eternity is at stake, and we have been given the mercy of God to make the gospel of God known among them. And so let us use this grace he has given us, the grace of God in us for the glory of God around us, do we realize in this room that we have no right to the favor of God? We have no merit that warrants the mercy of God. I think about my own life. I think about the reality that I was born into a context where the gospel is readily accessible. And I've heard about the death of Christ on the cross practically since the day I was born. And as if that were not great enough, I've also been born into a context where I've never since the day I was born had to worry about clean water or food or medical care. And I'm humbled by the reality that I had nothing to do with where I was born. All of these things are pure evidences of the immeasurable grace of God toward me. And I did nothing to earn those things. I'm even more humbled when I consider that there are nearly two billion people in the world today who have been born into contexts where the gospel is not there. They were born into families where for generations their ancestors have been born, have lived, and have died without ever hearing that Jesus died on a cross. And some of them born into context where 
there is no clean water or guarantee of food. And the reality that they had nothing to do with where they were born either. Now, I am not going to presume to know the mind and motives of God or probe the mysteries of God in all this, but I will say this based on the authority of God that we are seeing in His Word. To recipients of immeasurable mercy all across this room, you have the gospel. You and I have resources more than the overwhelming majority, even the poorest in this room, incredibly wealthy compared to the world. We have been shown mercy. Let us not then disconnect His mercy in our lives from His mission in this world. He has given us mercy for a reason, for a purpose, and it is not to sit back in the shade and enjoy our comforts and complain when they're not there. It is to give our lives to the spread of His glory to the ends of the earth. No matter what comforts that means we lose, no matter what safety or security that means we have to sacrifice. This is the purpose of our lives on this planet. So let's Use the grace of God in us for the glory of God around us in the great city of Birmingham. God, give us your concern for this city, for the people we pass by every day in this city. Use us as your spokesman with a message of grace and hope and life and repentance. Turn to God. God, may these words be on our lips in this great city. And God, use us amidst the great needs of the nations. Help us to see what you see and feel what you feel and obey what you have said. Help us to go and preach the gospel to the ends of the earth.